Hello and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon and I'm here with my colleague Suzanne Spradley. We are both attorneys with NFP's legal and compliance team and we're here on this podcast to break down interesting compliance issues for employers and other interested people. So today we're going to dig into a topic that Congress has actually shown some bipartisan support for, which is somewhat rare these days. Amazing. So that topic is surprise medical billing. Suzanne. Yeah. You know, back in 2019, we saw a lot of activity on this subject and they were expected to pass something and pass some type of legislation. Obviously, that didn't happen, but there's still significant bipartisan interest in this topic. And we've even seen a couple of new bills introduced this year, which we will go through somewhat at a high level. But we want to look at this issue as it pertains to our clients, the employers. Great. So, Suzanne, can you just start off this discussion talking about what is a surprise medical bill? Well, a surprise medical bill can refer to a number of different situations in which a patient is obviously surprised by the bill that they receive from for healthcare services. But in this case, we are referring to a medical bill that a patient unexpectedly receives because they go in for in-network facility and they end up receiving care by an out-of-network provider and then are billed for that. Um, there is a term balance bill that is sometimes used interchangeably with surprise bill. It's a little bit different in that with a balance bill, you will have an insurance company paying a portion of it and then the patient is billed for the balance. So surprise billing can often occur in um, either obviously emergency situations mm-hmm. or even in non-emergency situations that have like an unexpected complication after a routine surgery. So that if someone goes in for like a hip replacement, is in the hospital for post-operative care, and they have a heart attack. And now they have to bring in some an out-of-network cardiologist to care for them. So that's, you know, that's one example that it could occur in a non-emergency situation. Um, and so um, what we'll see is now when we talk about proposed legislation is in the emergency situations, the providers are prohibited from billing patients for anything above an in-network rate. So it, that uh, that amount that is in question has to be worked out between the insurer and the provider rather than being pushed off to the patient and balance billed. Um, now, as it pertains to non-emergency services, the bills that we'll talk about do differ in how they handle that situation. Right. So how big of a problem is this? Well, the Kaiser Family Foundation found that patients come home with at least one out-of-network bill in about one out of every six emergency room visits. And when they looked at large employer plans, it looked like on average... of all emergency visits and 16% of in-network hospital stays result in an out-of-network bill. Hmm. But what's really interesting when you dig into the data is that it varies greatly really by state. So, for example, if you look at states like Minnesota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Alabama, and Mississippi, emergency visits ended up with only 5% of them with an out-of-network bill. But when you look at our great state of Texas and Mm -hmm. New Mexico, California, New York, at least 30% of um, emergency visits ended up in an out-of-network charge. So significant variance based on geography. Yeah, so state to state for sure. You mentioned earlier this idea that uh, there are some provider groups that are out of network, but providing services in an in-network facility. Talk a little bit more about that, because that could definitely be confusing for uh, a patient who goes in to what they think is an in-network facility. Yeah, and this has always bothered me because it seems like 
You know, this seems like such a simple resolution. Um, but what's happening is there's a group of physicians, usually emergency physicians, ancillary providers like an anesthesiologist, and they prefer to stay out of network. Now, those, you know, on the pay payer side will say that they're doing so so that they can maximize the revenue. Um, but generally, you're going to see that these group of physicians have gained some sort of market power, and sometimes they have the backing of a private equity firm, which we'll talk about that issue a bit later. Um, but they take the advantage of the fact that in most cases, patients don't get to choose them. So why then would insurers not simply contract with them like they do with any other provider, like with the hospitals and the other providers, and just bring them in network? Um, what we hear is that insurers push back on that idea because they have gained uh, such market power. They feel that by giving in, they're having to pay higher rates, and they'd rather just keep them out to keep their costs lower. Um, so, for example, if there's a few anesthesiologists in the area, they can demand higher prices for their services. So, again, the it really gets down to a matter of just negotiation, and it could simply be that they're a, unable to come to some type of resolution in cost. I mean, the insurers don't want to overpay, the providers want more money, and, and it's hard to find a solution that marries these two desires up. Um, now, I mentioned that the providers are often backed by private equity firms, and what we've seen is private equity firms have been buying up physician practices and consolidating them into these large national staffing firms. The two biggest physician staffing firms are Envision and Team Health, and they are owned by two of the biggest private equity firms in the country, KKR and Blackstone Group. Mm -hmm. But we also see private equity firms um, owning two or three of the largest emergency ambulance and emergency air transport services. And these are two other areas that we deal with when it pertains to surprise medical billing. Right. Um, and so you're going to see at least one of the federal bills that focus on this private equity issue. But before we switch over into the, the federal legislation, I do want to point out that there is activity at the state level. So you do see at least 25 states now that have some form of law that's protecting the patient from surprise out-of-network bills Again, they usually focus on emergency care, not um, non-emergency care. Mm -hmm. And you also have to realize that in most cases, these laws are preempted by ERISA. And so they're typically only dealing with the fully insured market, and they don't extend to those self-insured plans. And we know that over 60% of privately insured employees are covered by self-insured plans. So that really is a large gap in um, protection for consumers. Right, and it can be a, comp a confusing world for individuals in a state where uh, maybe the state has passed some type of legislation, an individual hears about that, they think they have that protection, but they are actually covered under a self-insured plan and don't have the state protection. So that can be another reason this is confusing. Right, and, and employees don't always know whether their plan is self-insured or fully insured. It's right. not because you could have a carrier that's also administering a self-insured plan. So it's definitely not always clear right. to the employees. Okay, Suzanne, so let's jump in and look at what's happening in Washington. There are a couple of pieces of legislation being considered by Congress. Tell us about those. Right. So there's three pieces of legislation that are currently under consideration. One is the first one we'll deal with is called, it's it's a, com a compromise between the HELP Committee, which is the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee with Lamar Alexander at the lead, along with the leadership from the House Energy and Commerce Committee. And it is called the Lower Healthcare Cost Act. And it's really a combination of prior bills, the No Surprises Act and the Lower Healthcare Cost Act. And it was introduced in December uh, of 2019. So what we're going to see as we go through each of the bill, each of these bills, there is considerable alignment, but the main area that they differ is in the area that, that pertains to the specific payment rate for which the services that fall under the ban on balanced billing. 
and then the process by which the providers and the health plans can negotiate that rate. As it pertains to this bill, the Lower Health Care Cost Act, they use a combination of a minimum benchmark rate for insurers to pay providers, and then they also use that arbitration process for insurers and providers to settle payment disputes. And the arbitration kicks in at any claim over $750. So what does this mean for patients? In a non-emergency situation, an out-of-network provider who's providing services in an in-network facility um, they are prohibited from balance billing the patient unless up to 72 hours in advance they've given notice of what the cost will be and the patient consents to it. So some ancillary providers are, don't even have this option and they, they cannot balance the bill. They must accept in-network rates. So that makes sense. I mean, a little bit more time to work things through in a non-emergency situation because you don't have that obvious immediate health need to be taken care of. So that's the first uh, piece of legislation. Tell us about the second piece of legislation, Suzanne. So the second one is the Consumer Protections Against Surprise Medical Bills Act of 2020. That's a mouthful. And it was introduced by the leaders of the House Ways and Means Committee in February of 2020. And under this measure, if the provider and the payer do not reach a resolution within a 30-day negotiation period, then either one of them can initiate the arbitration process, which is administered by an independent third party. There is no benchmark methodology in this bill. And so the parties have to present their best and their final offer to the mediator along with supporting information. Now, some have said that for self-insured plans, gathering that supporting information may be difficult if they don't have access to um, specific information that they will need. Um, but the arbitrator is allowed to consider the median contracted rate specific to the plan and for similar providers, services, and geographic areas. What's interesting is the mediator is prohibited from considering UCR, usual and customary charges, or billed charges. I think that's interesting because mm -hmm. it seems to lead towards the payer rather than the provider. There's no minimum dollar threshold, so even if it's $500 case, they can take it to arbitration. And the secretary of HHS is permitted to develop a process that would allow batching of similar claims. So a, a little bit different from the prior one. Um, there is consumer protection provision that requires that patients receive an advanced explanation of benefits, which is a cost estimate that describes which providers will deliver their treatment, the cost of services, and the provider's network status. Now, as it pertains to balance billing, we talked about all of these bills would prohibit balance billing for any emergency situation. In this one, for non-emergency situations, again, there is a notice and consent criteria to balance bill except again for ancillary services for which they these providers are not eligible for the notice and consent exception. Now they do outline what an ancillary service is um, and it would include an emergency medicine provider or supplier, anesthesiologist, pathologist, radiologist, neonatologist, assistant surgeons, hospitalists, intensivist, if I can say that. <laughs> That's a hard word to say. <laughs> that is a difficult one. But it's nice to have a better idea of what we're talking about when we say ancillary services, right? Right. And again, all of these are providers that you're not typically choosing, but that are right. brought into the, you know, to, to take care of your case. Right. Okay. So take us through the third piece of legislation now that Congress is considering. So the third one is the Banned Surprise Billing Act, and it was introduced by the House Education Labor Committee again in February of 2020. And this would use a market-based benchmark of the local median in-network rate for amounts that are less than or equal to $750, very similar to the other bill that we mentioned. It also includes a 25,000 benchmark for air ambulance services, mm. which seems high, but it's good that they have it benchmarked up to that rate. And again, this is an area of, of issue 
for surprise medical bills. Right. Um, it does allow the providers and the payers to elect an arbitration process for any amounts over that, that threshold. The arbitrator must consider the median in-network rate and also is allowed to consider other factors like you know, the level of training of the provider, their experience, any extenuating circumstances like, you know, the complexity of the case. But unlike the Ways and Means Bill, it includes a so-called cooling off period that's intended to prevent excessive utilization of this arbitration process. And it prohibits a party from submitting another arbitration request against the same party within a 90-day period. So it's, again, it's trying to, to minimize the use of this process. Um, the bill requires out-of-network providers and facilities to provide notice of their network status and a good-faith estimate of charges that may be applied for out-of-network care. And it requires the plans, not only the providers, but the plans to provide the participant with a good-faith estimate. So there's some obligation on both the providers and the plans. Right. It's interesting. Um, so as part of these processes, there's a lot of discussion between using a benchmark versus using arbitration. Um, walk us through what you mean by bench, the benchmark approach versus the arbitration approach and maybe some advantages and disadvantages of each. Yeah, and possibly we should have done this up front because we've been talking about really that being the variance between mm -hmm. the bills and really the, the key part, I think, for stakeholders in this discussion. But under the benchmark approach, providers would be able to receive a local market-based payment for their services. And the idea is that it would limit the provider's ability to charge patients these egregious rates, but yet it would cause the insurers to be, still be responsible for paying a good portion of the patient's care. Um, obviously, the providers push back on this. In the interest of our clients, which is the employers, some of which are self-insured, we would certainly support the benchmarks because it's predictable. And, you know, we would say it's fair. The providers are going to say it's not fair, that it's too low. But the predictability is really important. And it would also help create a downward pressure broadly on the commercial healthcare price. So it would encourage more providers to come in network. For example, you could set a benchmark rate at 125% of Medicare. And that would avoid locking in some excessive commercial rates indefinitely. And it would really slow the rate of future price growth um, because the benchmark would be indexed to Medicare. What we see is that employers are especially concerned with just the, you know, that something that is not predictable um, and really have concern that their patients are going to continue to receive these surprise medical bills. Right. Okay. So those are some advantages there for benchmarks. Well, tell us about some of the, well, tell us about arbitration and then maybe why that's not a, the best idea. Well, arbitration is, for one, it's burdensome, it's costly, and it's uncertain. And I think that for all those reasons, for a payer, it's of concern. So you have a third party that is setting the rate. There's no transparency into how the third party will set the rate. There's no oversight of how they set the rate. The physicians would likely, or the providers would likely start with an excessively high charge um, as a baseline for negotiation. Mm -hmm. That would be a normal process for negotiating. Um, and in fact, it could drive more providers to out-of-network uh, relationships because if they see those out-of-network providers getting their rates driven up, the in-network looks less attractive. And so you start to see more providers going out-of-network, more uncertainty in the market. Um, and this leads to more to increased premiums, obviously, okay. for consumers if the prices are driven up. So we believe that Congress should take a look at this and protect those patients from um, you know, over the profits of, of these providers. So in just in general, binding arbitration is really inefficient. 
it's not effective approach for addressing this because it could create more instability in the market. So we, we want Congress to bring greater transparency to the healthcare cost. A benchmark rate is clearly transparent. You're setting a fixed amount there. Everyone going into it knows what that fixed amount is. Right. Makes a lot of sense to me. So Suzanne, is there anything else that we need to know here on these issues or other, other things to consider when it comes to surprise medical billing? So what's going to be really interesting to watch is how this bill these bills are brought forth and, and whether they're attached to another provision. And when I say that, what you want to think of is these bills actually generate savings. And they were brought before the Cong Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, and they they score it to see what, what impact does it have. Right. And they found that um, they varied between, say, $18 billion and $25 billion in savings over a 10-year period. Mm -hmm. And so what we'll see is that these bills will likely be tied to some other legislation in order to offset um, any any additional costs that that legislation will provide. So it's, it's going to be looked as a pay-for, which is always important anytime you're trying to push through legislation. Obviously, the bills that include a benchmark rate drive more savings, and so because it, it, it lowers the cost in the marketplace. Right. So that'll be just an interesting fact to watch. All right, Suzanne. Well, thanks for walking us through all of these issues to consider with surprise medical billing. This will obviously be something to watch in 2020, particularly in an election year. Uh, but this is great background information to help better understand these issues. So thank you for walking through that. Yeah. And it's one, it is one of those rare moments when we do see bipartisan support and we could actually see legislation passed. Right. Always hopeful. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And like we like to say on this podcast. <laughs> it's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Chase. Thank you.